about to enter a world of pain, suffering, and laughter. Outside is frightful. Dum de dum de life. That, that that is the next line of the song, and that is the intro to this episode of Worst Gig Ever. I'm Mike Pace. I'm Jeff Garlock. Welcome to the show. This week we have a very lovely filmmaker, documentary filmmaker named Josh Johnson. He was a lovely man. He is lovely. Josh made a fantastic film earlier this year called Rewind This about the history of the VHS cassette phenomenon. I had heard about it from uh, my friend Frank Hale, who said, you should check this out. You would love it. I heard about it from Uh, my brother, Jonathan Pace, who said you'll love this. I think it was literally the same week we both heard about it from someone else. Both watched it. Both loved it, right? In our wheelhouse, right? In uh, probably a lot of the wheelhouses of the people who listen to this show. I a lot of wheelhouses will be (laughs) occupied Uh, with the Venn diagram of wheelhouses. Huge. Yeah. And if you're into anything dealing with movies from the 70s and 80s released on VHS tape, schlock. There's a lot of schlock. A lot of schlock. A lot of exploitation. So Rewind This is coming to DVD on January 14th. You can pre-order it now. I think Google rewind this. Pretty easy to do, folks. We can't do all the work for it. Don't insult us. (laughs) There's a standard DVD release, and you can also get a DVD-VHS combo of this movie. That's fantastic for all the diehards out there. Exactly, exactly. If you're a fan of the diehard films... You're going to love it. You're probably going to You probably saw it. those on VHS. This uh, is when better than out. the last Die Hard movie. It's probably better than the I last think he's gonna, two. He's going to put that on the box. Uh, he should. That's definitely. a quote from the worst gig ever, guys. Yes, better than the last two Die Hards. So we're very excited to have Josh on the show. It's a very informative talk. You want to hear some other informative talks? Oh, we got a lot of them. We got a year's worth, a year and a half's worth Oof. of episodes. You can check out at worstgigeverpodcast.tumblr.com, iTunes, Stitcher Radio. We're on Facebook. Facebook, like us, send us a, a message via worstgigever at gmail.com or Twitter at Mikey Pace at Garlock at worstgigever. Send us a review. Send us a review. Write us a review. Literally us, write, write us, us a, review us a review and send it to movie. us. I'll give you my address if you tweet at us. <laughs> we are available all across the internet. You know where you can listen to those or where you can listen to those through too? Oh, that's right. Your tweaked audio Tweaked audio headphones. Listen, you go to tweakedaudio.com backslash nothing. You go to tweakedaudio.com. Just go to tweakedaudio.com. You You can put the backslash in. It's up to you. You enter the promo code worst. You'll get one third off of a pair of tweaked audio headphones. They're phenomenal headphones. They fit in the ear. They're comfortable. You don't look like a doofus with your beats. You don't need Dr. Dre beats. All you need is tweaked audio. I think Dr. Dre beats. Dr. Dre beats. It's all one word. And if you order the tweaked audio headphones, it's a lifetime guarantee. And you'll get one-third off of that price. So I mean, that's a golden deal for you, some golden You can't pipes. go wrong with that. So in more of the plug department, uh, you can check out episodes of The Worst Gig Ever TV show on the web, YouTube.com. <laughs> Some would call it a web show. <laughs> or you might call it a web series. YouTube.com <laughs> backslash official comedy. Official comedy is the channel on YouTube that has produced 
all of these episodes of the Worst Gig Ever show. We have guests. We're sitting. We're doing a Charlie Rose style around the table. It's 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 a hot little number. We Goofing got John off. Benjamin. We got the Gregory brothers. We got Frightened Rabbit. Frightened we have Rabbit. Jake Fogelnest. I mean, and, and this, the hits will just keep coming. And there'll be so. more coming out this week, so check them out. I know you've always wanted to see what we look like. Now you can finally do that. <laughs> Send us comments about what we look like. I get it. I look like We Zach don't Osborne. read the YouTube Fine. comments, guys. Just yeah. so you know, this is peace and love. Peace and love, according to Ringo via Howard Stern. <laughs> so listen, guys, uh, this is the end of the year, too. Thanks, everybody, for listening Thanks, to us. Everyone. We'll have a holiday episode coming out, and then we're going to take that last week of uh, the year off just to recalibrate. Start off 2014 with a bang. So, because we're going to have a live sex show on that first episode. Boom. So, yeah, take that last week off for yourself and uh, enjoy all of our back episodes. Enjoy our official comedy web show and enjoy this episode. Bye. So I moved to Austin, Texas in 2002 and desperately needed work. And the first place that I could get to hire me was an assisted living facility. And I went through a few different job roles there, all of which provided a variety of awkward experiences. So I started out in the kitchen and I was the only person that spoke English. So my entire training period was, uh, you know, three years of high school Spanish, you know, doing the best that I could to figure out, you know, what I was being taught to do. And that was inevitably horrible. But that was still light years ahead of what ended up happening, which is that I ended up moving into the nursing department. And I was working as a medication supervisor, which meant that I was supervising the nursing staff and you're responsible in emergency type of situations. So I would have lots of awkward conversations like I would have to call a 50 year old lawyer at his day job and say, you know, your mom uh, definitely went through menopause a while ago, so we're sure it's not this, but there's blood coming out of her vagina right now. <laughs> and we're pretty sure there's a cut or something, so can you come take her to the doctor? So, you know, I would have to, you know, deliver those kind of messages all the time. And uh, the most awkward thing that I went through, though, is uh, a woman had passed away, and the people from the morgue came to pick her up. And they were short staffed, and they asked me to help. Ugh. And I don't know anything about this world, but what I quickly discovered is that uh, the people that work for those organizations are very casual about what they do, and they can be very rough with the bodies. So somebody that I had had, you know, a six-month relationship with that I knew, we were just kind of yanking her all over this room and, you know, hurling her from this bed onto a stretcher. And, like, you can actually feel parts of the body kind of give way. Like, you're, at, you're clearly damaging this corpse <laughs> right and, you know they don't care and I, I suppose maybe they shouldn't you know it ultimately doesn't really matter you they're know, gonna they're fix gonna, it up anyway exactly but like i had never been directly confronted with that and so it was just a really kind of soul crushing experience and you know those were the kind of things that would happen over and over in that job is situations you would never expect that would inevitably be worse than you could have anticipated <laughs> right That's, i mean it's it's actually funny because uh, truth be told this is not the first assisted living story mm -hmm. we've had yep. on the show Comedian Ellie Glazer told a told a great That's one. Amber uh, Nelson. Amber Nelson. Like, seems like it's people in the arts sometimes go the route of assisted living to like maybe it's maybe it's something dealing with people personalities, you know. Maybe or they <laughs> just or they'll just take anyone there or something. I mean, I, did you have any medical 
training at no, all. No, no. I think what you said is like actually the kind of uh, disappointing thing about right. a lot of those things is that they will kind of take anybody that's willing to do right. certain roles. I mean, there's certain positions. I mean, it's not to shit on you, but I'm no, just no, no, saying, no. you know. I mean, you can sort of, uh, there are certain positions that require a certain level of training, but there right. are also, you know, a lot of workarounds, a lot of things. So what you get is a lot of people that just really want attention and they want to feel loved themselves. So right. they want to be in these roles where they're caregiving for people because then they get that appreciation, but sure. they don't necessarily really feel motivated to do a good job. They're really there to service other needs that right. are being met yeah. in other aspects of their life. Right. And how long did you work there? I worked there for three years, but I Ooh. worked about, you know, three different job roles while I was there. That's, uh, I mean, it it's sounds more, terrible it's for morbid. me. Would... It sounds like it could be fodder for like a mid 80s straight to VHS horror film. Right. Actually. Absolutely. Or Jesus the Son. You know, one of the, the most the difficult movie Jesus Son, where he works in an old folks home. Oh yeah, Billy Crudup. Yeah, exactly, Billy Crudup. Yeah, that's a great film. Yeah, it is a great film. Did it feel <laughs> truthful to you? In uh, that there probably shouldn't he shouldn't have been working there, but they allowed him to. Absolutely, that's yeah. exactly the kind of personality type that we're working <laughs> right. in there. You know, former junkies, yeah, people, you know, on recovery, yeah, will get those jobs. Was, well, because that is the odd thing too. It was what I'm not sure if yours was like this, but I remember my my wife's grandmother. We. You know, she was in assisted living, but then ended up going to a nicer one. But it was it was a merch, like because it was like half junkies on the floor and then half older people who just needed help living. So it was like you'd go one door down. It was just like Johnny, the Vietnam vet, who's just dealing with heroin addiction while it's also her grandmother just living there. And it was an odd mix of patients. Yeah. yeah, for sure. In fact, you know, when I was even younger, I worked in the kitchen at a nursing home when I was in high school. And uh, one of my coworkers was a Vietnam veteran and, you know, would sometimes interrupt, you know, while you were doing, you know, preparing a food dish or something, he would interrupt to tell you a story about, you know, taking a, a Vietnamese soldier a uh, hundred feet up in a helicopter and dropping into the, you know, the ground, like as though this was relevant to what was happening. So you lived wet, hot American summer. Yeah, the, exactly. In the that, cafeteria. Well, this all makes me think of, you know, my grandmother's current situation where she lives in independent living. Yep. Jefferson's Ferry out east on Long Island. <laughs> Lovely. We talk about that too much. It, it has come up a number of times, but it not, it's, it's, there's independent living and there's also assisted living in the same facility. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a lovely place. And I guess right. if you needed medical attention, uh, I mean, it's not a hospital, but like you're, right. they have staff that will, uh, you know, kind of take care of all that. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're they're great places, really. It's good that they exist, but sure. within the framework, there's uh, you know a lot that could be improved upon, yeah. and because it's also a business. You uh, sometimes, are, you know, you get into these situations where it's clear what would be best for the residents, but it doesn't make as much money. So right. a board will decide not to <laughs> right. do it. So yeah. it's a really frustrating situation. I mean, right. I, I, but that's what this podcast is about, right? Is <laughs> yeah. sy systemic failure. This is <laughs> without a doubt. Yes. Well, let me just a, a macabre question here. But can I, can you say that a macabre question? Yeah, definitely. Has anyone said that in the year 2013? We're uh, bringing it back, brother. When you're carrying a dead body. Does this feel like you're just carrying someone who is asleep or whatever? No, it, it or are you very almost aware? instantly does feel different. I mean, the the fact the, they get cold very fast. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're, the body is cold, the skin is cold. And there is a kind of, you know, they talk about dead weight. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, a lifeless feeling like, you know, it really does feel different and the weight distributes differently. So wow. it actually feels very foreign. Wow. That's, does it, I didn't realize I dead mean, weight was an actual thing. Not yeah. learning something new every right. day on this podcast. <laughs> so did you, I mean, that's obviously a situation where you would encounter, but working, working at this place, like, did you feel like I'm, you're constantly being, you know, uh, confronted with your own mortality? Like, 
just kind of a, a general reminder of like, oh, right, like we yeah. are all on this path that we can't get away from. But that was actually kind of a positive thing for uh-huh. me, actually. Like I did feel confronted by that all the time, but yeah, it actually made me appreciate uh, youth and the, the number of years that I theoretically still have right. more. So I think uh, having a lot of those experiences at a very young age was really a good thing for me and really shaped my outlook in a positive way rather mm-hmm. than, you know, inspiring sure. me to feel paranoid or whatever. And so when you're while you're doing this job, um, is the interest in kind of um, nostalgia and, and, you know, VHS culture, is that percolating alongside? I mean, this, I, I stopped doing that line of work quite a while ago. So, I mean, VHS was actually still a, a format. That uh, yeah, a, a format that people were buying. I mean, I certainly had DVDs already at that point, but it hadn't quite taken over. So I wasn't thinking about that so much, but definitely working with a lot of older people uh-huh. does instill in you a sense of nostalgia. And mm-hmm. when I was working at the nursing home at an even younger age, I actually stole a VHS tape from the community. <laughs> it was a videotape of Witchboard. And I nice. wanted to be able to watch the shower scene with Tawny Katane with nobody around. <laughs> And then I, I felt so guilty about having stolen it from elderly people that I ultimately returned it. And I'm sure it was never watched again. But uh, uh, that's the only VHS uh, nostalgia story that I have, you know, surrounding that. It community. was in why, the video library. Yeah. Why did they have yeah. a copy of Witchboard? I think they had bought out the stock of a mom and pop. That oh, closed, okay. And it was just happened to be one of those titles. Right. But I mean, nobody was ever going to watch it. Right. And w- was the idea to essentially become a filmmaker something that had always been... You'd been interested in? Yeah, I mean, from the time that I was a kid. I mean, in fact, when I was seven, uh, my uncle bought a VHS camcorder, and his idea was that he was going to make videos, and, you know, we could be in them. But my brother and I immediately took it over and made a trilogy of short films about killer potatoes from outer space. (laughs) And then he just decided to let us keep it. So, I mean, I was already starting to make movies, you know, even from a young age, because of this video technology that made it so accessible. And and how old are you? I was seven at that time. Oh, right now I'm 30. No, sorry, I just turned 31 last week. Okay, great. Happy birthday. Thank so you. we're we're roughly we're a couple years older, but we're roughly in the same same ballpark sa- in, in the same in the same wheelhouse. Yes, because I was I was also making. Uh, my grandfather had a VHS camera um, that I would just always play around with, and eventually I kind of just would borrow it for months on end and make my own skits. Or right, they were skits then. They were definitely weren't sketches. Definitely, they were they were not. They were <laughs> I only ripped off Evil Dead. Oh, any yeah. of mine any were ca- just any the camera as monster runs through my parents' in house. In-camera special effects. Um, but that, all of this stuff brings up that larger uh, issue of, you know, the democratization of the format. The fact that now, here's, here's kind of the first time. I mean, you had Super 8 before that. Mm-hmm. But that instantaneous, you didn't have to develop the footage. Right. You have, you could make your own movie. We've achieved our punk rock dream. And yeah. now we have to deal with the repercussions. Right. I mean, you had Super 8 and you know, these other kind of like small gauge film formats. But I mean, the huge difference there is that if that is all I could have used, I probably wouldn't have started making films that age mm-hmm. because my parents don't know enough about movies. They wouldn't have known to get that and they wouldn't have known where to process it. And I, I would have required all this help that I didn't have. But, you mm-hmm. know, video made it so easy. And, you know, you could teach yourself on the fly. And then you instantly, like you said, you could take the tape out and watch what you yeah, had made. Right. And that uh, immediacy and that accessibility was like uh, world changing for me yeah. because it took what I wanted to do, just making movies, and allowed me to do it instantaneously. And then, you know, there's no turning back. Yeah. You know, when my other grandparents had one of the first uh, consumer VCRs, they probably bought it, I, thi- I think they bought it in like 1974. Top loading? 
top loading Panasonic, and How at much the was time, that, I at the time, it yeah. was like fourteen hundred dollars. I was gonna guess fourteen hundred. It, it was absurdly expensive then. Right. So I think the this democracy that we're talking about happens maybe you know mid early mid eighties where the equipment becomes a tad bit smaller and a mm-hmm. tad bit more affordable. Um, because a $14, uh, you know, not my grandparents weren't made for money or anything. Sure. Uh, or made of money. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they insane about it. I don't even know what was on, what was available in the mid seventies on tape. I mean, not much. It was really like the consumer grade, you know, where people were buying them, you know, happened in the, the very late seventies. And then by the early to mid eighties, like 83, 84, a lot of homes had them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but what you did have, which was great is in the earliest days in, in the late seventies, you had one line that was out from 20th Century Fox because this company Magnetic Video licensed the titles. Mm-hmm. But that inspired a lot of independent companies to get in. So the most of what you had out there at that time in the late 70s when it was a booming kind of beginning period for video is independent titles. So you had guys that were taking films that were successfully playing in theaters on the independent circuit and releasing those to video. And so the big boom initially was actually really lurid uh, salacious movies right. that uh, had oh, been either okay. doing the drive-in circuit or kind of independent theaters, and you could get them, you know, at a gas station or at an electronics store, and uh, okay. that kind of independent content really ruled the day because it's all that was out there. Now, is this uh, s- sort of a different track than straight up like pornography? Yeah, it was yeah. definitely you know uh, horror films and yep. you know more the, more the exploitation type, uh, stuff. Yeah, versus and, and sometimes exploitation films. Sure. You know, there were sex films for sure, but not necessarily hardcore. That right. you know kind of took a separate path. And also, there's nudist really colony important. films, so yeah. stuff like that. Ross just like, Meyer. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, some, yeah. Uh, so before we you know uh, jumping around and, and talking about the format itself and the fast, you, for you personally, where does the fascination uh, uh, start? to create the idea that, uh, you know, I I want to document this. Well, the fascination starts when I'm a kid, probably, you know, five years old, around in there. And my interest isn't so much uh, home video as as much as it is movies. I was Mm -hmm. really obsessed with movies, and I would watch them on television, or we would go to the theater. But video uh, provided endless access. You know, we could go to a store, and I had so many options. And that was something that my parents' generation didn't have. This was a new thing, that Mm -hmm. there was a library of titles available to you to watch on your own schedule. Right. And that was really meaningful for me as a kid, because I was so obsessive about film that we could go multiple times a week and rent movies and I could see a lot. So I was a really voracious consumer of movies. And at the time, Betamax was out there, but we didn't have the machine. So, I mean, VHS was all I knew. That was just the way I accessed movies. And at that time, I wasn't sophisticated enough to really understand, you know, things like original aspect ratio. So for me, the difference between going to get in a theater or catching it on video was negligible. Yeah, I was really excited to be seeing the content. And so that's where it really started for me. It was just an obsession with the video store and an obsession with seeing as many movies as I could and starting to figure out how they connected to one another. And movies just seemed like a world that never ended. Yeah. at that time. And did you, were you taping things off of TV as well? Or was it kind of just a I rent? was. I, we would tape shows that we wanted to watch uh, when, you know, we kind of flirted with cable a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents would have HBO for a while and then they would see me watching something I wasn't supposed to and they would cancel it. And then we would get it again like a year later. So when we had cable, I would tape movies, but usually it would be TV shows and uh, specials that would be yeah. airing. But my uncle would also, uh, because he had cable, would make specialized tapes for us. So he would just send us a tape in the mail and, you know, the side label would say, Indy Indiana Jones one two three like you know and, and he would make like he would curate tapes for us and like that idea of you know kind of a mixtape or a, a themed tape or something like that really came from my uncle because he you know had the foresight to recognize that we would want to watch things that way. It's I, interesting to think about how like 
what station you had to will kind of like we all have our kind of like you know leanings towards what genres we like etc but like i think even having what station you had growing up like because for us it was hbo so it was like first like that connected to me being obsessed with like the first troll like mm-hmm. where i just had a vhs and because they showed it on hbo nonstop. So it was just like, well, I own HBO. This is the movie I'm into. Uh, but if I had Showtime, then I might not have been into yeah, Troll. HBO, well, I think also because HBO was really one of the first, you know, uncensored movie channels. Didn't Showtime come out of HBO? Or uh, I, don't remember. I, don't, I don't know the origin of Showtime, yeah. but I mean, it definitely did come after HBO. Yeah, right. I don't know if it was an offshoot of it or what the, the actual beginnings of the company were. Yeah. Right. But I mean, there's Z Channel before that, too, which I wish I had had. Yeah. Well, I think that was before all of our time, yes, right? definitely. Um, but it's interesting you bring up curating, because I used to do that when I was younger. I got very into taping, putting three movies, taping SLP, yep. tape them off, off HBO. And I had to make sure I got from the you know uh, movie studio logo at the beginning, black to black. You know, yep. And I, I remember and I had the worst movies. I had Hot to Trot, <laughs> Caddyshack 2. Uh, what? Uh, Great. Remember Ruskies? Yep. Yeah. Uh, the teen definitely. comedy about like the Russian who comes to hang out. And then I would have my dad label the tapes for me because I loved I loved his handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's. It, it, I still it, have my father's labeled "Run and Scared" <laughs> uh, from HBO. Well, now you could watch that on Netflix. I actually. know. Well, now I've got the VHS. Um, and I think that that for me dealt with having this weird like accountant sensibility where I loved you know logos and comp- mm-hmm. and you know the side cut and going into the video store and like seeing how all the Warner Brothers tapes had similar layouts but it would be different color for the different genre yeah. on the side of the the video box yeah I think that experience of going to the video store for people of a certain generation like really kind of defined uh, how we view iconography and how, like how we view marketing you Absolutely. know like you look at uh, VHS artwork the artwork that adorned those boxes and the way that they were marketing films to us at that time you know that's still the kind of artwork that I respond to whether it's looking at an album cover or whatever you know that kind of mm-hmm. illustrated artwork if I see something that's just a photograph of the faces of the people I automatically uh, am less interested than I would be if it's something that's evoking yeah. my imagination in that way. And I think that comes straight out of the video store. And the same thing with uh, the way things were cataloged and presented. You know, that's now how I kind of view the world. If I go into a store, like that's what I'm going to respond to is if I see a really great logo or if I'm looking at something that's facing kind of spine outward. Uh, that is very comforting to me. Yeah. And I think it's because I spent so many hours in a video store from the time I was so young. Well, what- as personal recollection, what were some specific boxes that were burned into your uh, memory? Well, I, for a number of years, I was really frightened by the box for the gate for some reason, yeah. which is not really one of the more extreme covers, but it's just something about the nature, which is this like hand stretching dirt away and you know, it evokes you can, much more than the actual movie does. exactly yeah yeah so i mean i was very afraid to see that movie and it's a relatively tame movie and even yeah. the box is kind of tame but like it really frightened me for some reason i was totally obsessed there were two movies it was uh taking it off and taking it all off which was uh, a couple uh sex film uh starring uh, kit natividad from the oh, russian sure, yeah. films yeah. and uh, i was just really obsessed with them because they had busty it was illustrations of busty gals like just barely covered and i, I really love that and then 
the really strange thing is that in like the taking it all off, like in the lettering uh, in off, there's breasts are in the lettering. <laughs> so I, I just thought it was like so fascinating that you couldn't show the illustrated women's breasts on their bodies. Uh-huh. But if they were disembodied and just part of the lettering, it was okay to have an yeah. illustration of breasts. Right. Like my child's brain couldn't process it, why that was. It's interesting that – and there's a great sequence in the documentary where you talk to the, the, um, the illustrator – uh, who created this, you know, this beautiful artwork, you know, mm-hmm. movie posters, and that were then, you know, translated to the, to, to the box. And there's just, it's just a trend in aesthetics through the, and I, you know, it started in like the mid nineties, I guess, when it just started sucking. Yeah. Her, you know, just when, you know, became about the photo, you know, the, the, the picture of the actor. Yeah. Um, big and, close up of Schwarzenegger. And yeah, sideways. and it's just, it's always kind of, and if you could trace it, just, it goes back to like, you know, when, iconography and typography in the 50s, 60s, 70s from anything looked amazing, you know, and it also speaks to this weird, like growing up, I loved Mad Magazine and like the, you know, the the literal art of the illustration. So all of those, I think of like the screwballs box, you know, where it's like, if it was a real girl, as opposed to this illustration of a girl, you know, it just, it wouldn't have the same... Uh, effect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Elsa Creepers is one that sticks with me forever. Like, you know, the American phenomena. Uh, Creep, uh, what was the Creepers? Uh, Dario Argento's, oh, but, okay. and it's a, it's a drawing of Jennifer Connolly holding her hand out. Half of her face is covered in bugs and getting eaten by bugs, and then bugs are coming out of her hands. Yeah. And I would stare at that one in Cheshire video because I did not like bugs then, and I really don't like them now still. Yeah. And it would like, it still would make me nauseous, and I'd be like, but I want to see it. And at that time, I had no interest in Argento as I didn't know him from anyone. Uh, and now he's obviously one of my favorites. And, like, it's, you know, there's still something of that, like, childhood remembrance of that box where, like, I don't really want to watch that one ever because I think of the yeah. box of Creepers. Yeah, it's interesting. We didn't put this in the film because, you know, we couldn't confirm that it was true. But a story that I was told by uh, an indie video distributor mm-hmm. is that the reason that we moved away from that, that that kind of stopped, is because customers were coming into the big box video chains and complaining about the illustrated box art because they thought that when they saw that illustrated cover, that it was a cartoon, that it was an animated film. Oh. So they were renting films for their children that were wildly <laughs> inappropriate because they they just saw an illustrated cover and assumed that it was right. child safe. So I don't know if that's true. Or they rented Ralph Bakshi's Street yeah. Trash and were like, uh-oh. <laughs> the only movie that literally both me and my friend Jay were like, I just feel nauseous watching yeah, yeah, this yeah. movie for some reason. Well, that was the first time I saw the the unrated Toxic Avenger. Oh, right. And, you know, probably being 10 years old or something. And that also has a great illustrated box art. Yeah. But them mowing down the kids and this, you know, on the bikes and then painting it on the, and it was just like, you know, you get that feeling in your gut that, right. like, you know, you just feel uncomfortable. But it's even a different time now thinking, though, with the big bucks. Like, I, like, I don't think any of us grew up with Blockbuster as our main one. Like, it's like for well, me, it was the, Cheshire I mean, Video. Yeah, towards, and yeah. then, uh, we had one other one, but like, you know, Cheshire Video still had, Make them die slowly, and I spit on your grave. The giant box, uh, and you know all of the banned in thirty-seven countries movies. We had them. Yeah, the first place that decline of Western civilization, the punk years. Yeah, was only. Well, at it should this be place. noted that when Blockbuster first opened, at least the one by me carried a ton of like awesome titles. Like it wasn't just forty-seven million really? copies of True Lies, or tr- you know something like that. Yeah. yeah. 
you could get screwballs at like right. Blockbuster in 1991. Yeah, I mean at that time, you know, I can't even remember going into a Blockbuster video and they had a cult section and mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't as great maybe it was like, you know, the indie video store that was, you know, in the cooler part of town, but I mean they would have some cult films. You know, they would have Eating Raul and they would have some of the more noteworthy ones. They would have Pink Flamingos or whatever. And you would go into their foreign section and they would have like two Fellini films. Yeah. They didn't have all of them. If you wanted right. to like really delve into a particular director's work, maybe you couldn't do that. Yeah. But there was enough to kind of get uh, a little bit of a a glimpse of certain worlds. And the second you said eating rare wool, I'm picturing that bot with the mouth I got and it. the blue yeah. and yep. yellow yep. tile behind yeah. it. And I think what it I all- can picture not only the box, but where it's situated in Cheshire video. <laughs> and in, like was- I can picture and it was here and it was on the right and to the left was where the action venture was and dead heat was right across the way. We always <laughs> bring I up dead heat. That but eating at Raul was CBS video and it had the gray uh, spine and CBS Video used to always use the same font right. for there. But I think what this also speaks to is this idea of like, unlike today, there wasn't this instant gratification. So if you saw the box for any one of these movies, you play the movie in your head that you think oh, yeah. it is, as opposed to, well, let me look up Eating Raul and watch it right now on YouTube. Right. The gate seems so much yeah. scarier. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, an experience that a lot of people I know that are around my same age or a few years younger, a few years older, was the experience of that video box that seemed like it was going to be too much. It was mm-hmm. too tough. It was too scary or whatever. And then they saw it as an adult and, of course, it disappointed. But right. that experience that they had in their head, which may have lasted for a decade or two decades, was really satisfying. So, yeah. I mean, now people, they're not just nostalgic for that art. They're nostalgic for what it, you know, inspired or created within their imagination without having seen the film you know there's an experience beyond the movie and i think that's kind of slipping away when everything uh is a, sort of a click away right yeah i agree because you almost like i know for me like i get like a, a a thirst for that style of even marketing like i remember when the first saw came out and whatever the first batch of advertising was made me think it was going to be a different movie than it was like, and it was kind of, you know, it was like one of the first of like the torture porn series. But like, I was like, oh, like, however they released the, the poster, I was like, oh, great. Like, we've got like a cool exploitation movie coming. And then when it happened, it was a bunch of weird industrial music and <laughs> shitty torturing. But uh, it was like, because I was just so psyched. Same with all of the Rob Zombie stuff. I get yeah. very psyched about Like, I was just like, oh, fantastic. Devil's Rejects. Yeah. I'm going to love this movie. And then I didn't like it. But because I was like, oh, I want that. I want that experience yeah. again. I want those fonts. I want the tagline. Yeah, what did, I mean, what did you, uh, Josh, what did you think of that? Because I think Rob Zombie's a perfect figure who kind mm-hmm. of, he encapsulates, the guy clearly has, has like, cool, like he, he likes cool things, but he has this undercurrent of cheese that he can't like really Get escape. Yeah. But I mean, he's clearly playing to, you know, this, this nostalgic. Thing. like he gets it mm-hmm. but maybe he's a little off i don't know well i mean i i'm reluctant to uh you know speak negatively about any other filmmaker is because sure. it really opens myself up to critique <laughs> but i mean i'll say that there is this kind of uh interest and in, you know it's now called grindhouse but i mean i right. think a lot of people are making it actually probably never went to a grindhouse but right. there's this interest in uh kind of trying to capture that time and you know most of it i think is made by people that maybe don't even fully understand the appeal like mm-hmm. they they like it 
But then when you see what they make that's attempting to ape it, it, it doesn't actually seem to capture any of that. It's right. almost like they're they're keying into the wrong things to right. try to recreate. So right. I, I don't know where that comes from, but I, I think you see it pretty consistently. Like I'm struggling to think of anybody that has tried to make a film in that vein and it worked. You know, there's right. something that always seems just a little bit off where it's almost as though they like all of the most exploitable elements. But what was actually happening at that time is people were providing these exploitable elements in, because they needed to service that for right. marketing reasons and then they would include their personal vision in but now you have people where their personal vision is based entirely on those exploitable elements so everything that's between the lines in those earlier films is now the only thing uh, right. you know that's missing from these and it somehow is less satisfying I, I think the way to approach those films is to actually uh, ignore I mean maybe even like the stories mm -hmm. that they're telling or you know the big moments and like actually think about, think about the way they make you feel and right. try to evoke that and not even worry about being retro be contemporary mm -hmm. but just try to inspire those feelings in an audience that those were creating I yeah so that it's approach. not just a pastiche of yeah. like right. just recreating it all and that ends up I mean at least for me like I don't know like fucking Rob Zombie like I because I want to like them I want to but it's hey, just there's episodes going out to Rob hey Zombie. Rob no I love disrespect. you buddy I loved Last Exorcista <laughs> when I was 14 but there's just that level of kitsch that I'm like, oh, wait, maybe you saw some, you saw these differently than I did. Exactly. And that's what it is. Like, you know, and there are examples that I think, like, you know, because, like, yeah, like, you know, the Grindhouse double feature. Personally, like, I was like, eh, it doesn't really even feel like Grindhouse movies. They're just kind of this uh, remembrance of certain aspects, but the feeling isn't there. Whereas there were, you know, like, I think, like, The House of the Devil, like, that was a movie. I was like, oh, they pretty did it pretty well because it, it was more like, Use the elements and then uh, added themselves into. I think that ends up being the thing. Like, like for it's a really work. It can't just be a remembrance movie. It can't just mm -hmm. be a, just a retrified movie. It has to actually have. Uh, it's that '70s show versus that '80s show. <laughs> Honestly, it can't just be. Here's a bunch of references and touchstones. Well, there has to be a heart in there. Speaking too. of the actual thing. I mean, you know, you were living in Austin for many years and where you kind of, cre you know, started the idea for this project. And you couldn't, probably couldn't have picked a better city right. to no. be situated in because they have such, they get it right away. And there's such an appreciation. And, you know, the guys at the, the Draft House and iHeart Video and, I mean, Vulcan Video, I mean, they're just like, so I'm assuming that just, you know, kind of working with these people um, was a joy. <laughs> For sure. I mean, a lot of those people are friends of mine, and they were people that we were already involved with. So when we started making the movie, we were in a great position. Because we lived in Austin, we were able to shoot a lot of footage before going anywhere else. I mean, ultimately, we traveled all over, but I mean, we had a lot of footage before we did that. So we never had that problem of, you know, we need to get started. You know, how are we going to get off of our feet? You know, we could start working immediately uh, yeah. just mm -hmm. with the people that we had access to and that we knew would want to participate. Yeah. Many of whom ended up, you know, becoming integral to the, the film as, you know, it was in its finished form. So that was a perfect way to start. And, you know, the Alamo Draft House in particular was really supportive and helpful. We knew some people that were programmers there and, you know, they're featured in the film. But they were really helpful if we wanted to do an event. They would help us, you know, put that event on so that we could then document it. They were already doing things in their programming that overlapped with what we were doing. And then also they were really great about uh, helping us do a fundraiser one time when we needed to raise some money to go. So being a part of that community is uh, invaluable. And I don't know if we would have had the same yeah. uh I don't know if we would have had the possibilities that we ultimately ended up having if we didn't start in Austin because we were able to do so much so early that we had something to show for ourselves when we wanted to do more. Yeah. Right. For, for the listener who may not have had the pleasure of 
ever going to the an Alamo draft house. It may be like me. Yeah, like <laughs> I mean, what's what? How would you? How, what would what would be the best way to describe what they do? It's sort of like. Uh, if you live in any kind of metropolitan area, there's probably an art house or an independent cinema that, you know, programs kind of oddball movies or, you know, art house films and things like that. It kind of takes the spirit of that and combines it with uh, the experience of going to a bar. They serve beer and food Fantastic to your seat. Food. Really good food. Yeah. And so you're able to kind of uh, go to dinner and a movie uh, all combined, but in an environment that's uniquely designed to appreciate that experience. You know, they don't allow talking or texting and those things are enforced very strictly. And so it cultivates this great audience, which, you know, is interested in seeing wild entertainment, but approaching it from a place of true appreciation rather than irony or being superior yes. to it mm -hmm. because they demand that you respect the film when you're in their theater. Yes. And that's a really unique thing that is perfectly conducive to the type of film that we were trying to make because we were trying to celebrate a kind of disappearing culture that for the most part is not widely respected. And that's exactly what they're trying yeah. to do at the Alamo. So they're perfect, uh, you know, people for us. And to they work. also, I mean, they also do show first run, uh, films as well. Like you can see, they, they just, I, when I lived there, I would go to their, the, it was Terror Tuesday and Weird Wednesday and they'd show a movie for, I think it was a dollar at mm -hmm. midnight. And it was always something, I saw the, I saw the man with two heads. Nice. Two heads, right? Yeah. Yeah, with uh, Rosie Greer. Yep. Uh, Ray Milland. And it was amazing. And you felt, and it's a beautiful theater. Or, I mean, there are multiple locations. In Austin, there are like five of them, I think, in Austin or something. Uh, like that. I think there's yeah four, four now. Them. But they're, I mean, I mean, it's like a, it's a legit thing, and they're they actually there's one in Yonkers. They open uh, or they're opening one in Yonkers. Oh right, so, I did yeah, see that. Oddly, not in Manhattan. I don't know. Maybe we'll get one at some point in right. the New York. Hey, keep your fingers crossed. The New York brother. area. Um, but they're just, it's just, uh, it was, it was one of the best things about living in Austin. I have to say. But yeah. Um, but another question that I had for you. Because we're talking about like the love of of what you know what VHS was able to afford filmmakers and on audiences, but I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on the actual physical medium itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, because this clearly is like a medium is the message thing, right? But you know, I, I've been thinking about this this idea of like you, you take a piece of vinyl and it's like a beautiful thing, you know, it, maybe because it's got curves and it's a, yeah some kind sensual, of thing. Man. It is. It's like a beautiful thing to look at, and then you take a VHS cassette tape. <laughs> and it's kind of like this amazing, it like, it's like this very charming, almost like steampunk thing with right. these screws and gears and things like that. What, what are your thoughts on the actual format itself? I mean, it's definitely very clunky. Um, mm -hmm. it's, I have a lot of affection for it, and that affection, you know, really stems from the fact that it brought movies into my life in a way that, you know, I can't really talk about any of the format having done. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it has a lot of limitations. Um, and I think some people love those limitations. You know, for me, they were always kind of a frustration, though. You know, you have things, you know, like uh, tracking issues and, yep. you know, the tape can be warped. I mean, now if you scratch a DVD, it's, you know, almost impossible <laughs> to get a certain section to play. So you could at least repair tapes. But I mean, the, there was a lot of upkeep involved. And I always found that frustrating, especially as a kid, because I didn't really know how to do it very well. Home tape surgery. Exactly. Yeah. Stick the pencil in to get the, to get the, uh, magnetic tape yeah they get oh, happen all the time yeah always gets feels like it gets tighter somehow <laughs> but i do have a lot of affection yeah. for the weight 
of it, you know, uh-huh. especially if it wasn't, you know, one of those cheap kind of good times tapes that they would put <laughs> right. out. I mean, I, you, when you pick it up, you definitely get the sense of like, this is an object there. It feels like there's a movie on it. If that right. makes sense. Yes. Like, you know, you, a movie now could be stored on really anything, but sure. like, you would pick that up and like, it made sense in your brain. Like, Oh, there's a movie on this. I can feel right. it. There's something in this. Yeah. And they had to work hard to make it and get a lot of tape in that little thing. Yeah. But in terms of the presentation, you know, I, I don't have a lot of nostalgia for uh, the aesthetic uh, look of videotape. I mean, I, I like it sometimes as a stylistic thing. You see a lot of music videos lately are mm-hmm. being done, you know, shot on VHS camcorders, and it does take you to a certain time. But I would never choose at this point to watch a film on videotape if I had other options. You know, for me, at this point, really, it's more about the fact that there's so many films that are only available that way. Right. And so I'm certainly willing to watch the videotape because yeah. that's the only way I can see that movie. But, but you would never have shot the documentary on VHS. No, I mean, we actually, you know, did talk about it, of course. But I mean, one of the main reasons we did that, and it really wasn't even an aesthetic thing as far as, you know, whether or not we liked the way that looked, it was just that we knew all of our, you know, source clips and stuff we were going to be using were going to be cutaways to videotapes. Uh And we didn't want the documentary footage we were shooting to look exactly like we were cutting away to. Like we wanted there to be that distinction between what we were doing. But uh, I think it's really interesting now that you see uh, videotape being used the way like Super 8 and things used to be used in movies where like they will cut to a sequence and it's shot on Super 8 and it's mm-hmm. clear like, oh, this is the past. This is like a remembered thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Now you see the video static being used in that same way. It's actually like a storytelling device now to use video yeah. in, in film. I think that's really interesting. Right. Uh, what about Blu-ray? <laughs> I personally love Blu-ray. I think it's a great format. Uh, in fact, uh, we would press Blu-rays uh, of our film to show at festivals. You know, sometimes they couldn't play DCP right. or whatever, and uh, it was always a lot more reliable than some uh-huh. of the other things that we would do. Uh, just because it's you know a physical disc, you put it in the player and it either plays or it doesn't. Right. You bring backups, but I, I do like the way it looks. I think the problem that sometimes you have with Blu-rays now is not the technology itself, but the way that they're mastering the discs, which mm-hmm. is that you know when they go through and clean it up, there's there's certain things that are being erased or cleansed. You know, you look at a Blu-ray and it looks incredible sometimes, but it doesn't, I, I feel like it doesn't accurately recreate the way right. the film is supposed to look, especially when they're doing older films. But I think that's just an an issue with the people that are doing those transfers. I mean, I, I think the technology itself is the best home video format right. we've had. Because I guess I'm, I'm not, I'm someone who has never made the switch, right? Either, I just yeah. haven't made it yet. Uh, and like, and sometimes I'm just like, I don't know if I like it. Like, and, and you know, I have those times where I'm like, do I want to watch Maniac on like Blu-ray? Like do like because I do worry, but I think sometimes, and I think there's a bias I have where I think like if I'm in like a Best Buy, I'll see like those weirder 3D TVs. Like my mother-in-law has one that just makes me. It takes me out of it so yeah. much because I'm like, oh, everyone's on a set. Like it's, they've cleaned it up so much and given it some weird depth that I'm like, oh, the 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 fourth wall has been completely broken. Like I, she, we, I think I was at my mother-in-law's house and on one of those TVs, it was like very HD and it was some 3D. Like it was a nun movie from the fifties. <laughs> and I was like, I can see the set now. Like I can see yeah, that this is a movie. It's not meant to be watching this. Yeah. Format. Like you can see the breakup yeah. between the character and the background. It would freak me out too much. Well, this is another thing that I, that I find interesting is that, and you mentioned this in, in Rewind This, where you talk about. There was there was a good what what is it fifteen years where VHS was essentially the format. Yeah, After it won the, the completely beta dominated. There was no competitor really. And similar to the way that like vinyl was up until you know for for many years. Um, but then you have the introduction of like laser discs in the early eighties, which look just like you know they look mm-hmm. like records. Um, why doesn't why doesn't that take off? It doesn't take off for a few reasons. One is the price point. Uh, it was introduced and it, it didn't initially catch on because 
a the price point and b because uh, other than you know collectors or you know AV obsessive types people didn't really understand the value like I, they saw that things were being presented in their original aspect ratio but they didn't understand what that meant in fact they didn't like the fact that there were bars there yeah. so it very quickly became identified uh, in the public perception and within the industry as this is for collectors or this is for people that are really passionate about film this is not for the casual film goer and that perception kind of stuck and they had a hard time overcoming that and because they weren't moving a lot of units they couldn't reduce the price and so it was just you know stuck in this cycle where they could yeah. really only produce X number of units and they knew they could sell those and they could charge you know enough to make their money off it but it, it never became a mass format for that reason you know it's funny because I have a good friend of mine loves laser discs and his his rationale is because now you can pick them up for two dollars three dollars right. but they it's the, like getting dollar record but the idea yeah but the idea is that the only they only released a certain number of like you can't get obscure movies on laser discs by and large so they only released kind of like his 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 argument is they only released really good movies or like classic movies on Laserdisc. So you know you can get for the most part it's it's you know the movie is going to be pretty. In the case, I mean he always had his Vi Warshawski Laserdisc like right. In they front. only so release good no. movies, man. They only release classic the, the, movies. The idea, like you know, you're not going to get Maniac on Laserdisc, right? Just like they only release good records on Minidisc, that Pearl Jam <laughs> Ten. Diamond and Pearls by Pearl by Prince. If you're a passionately mainstream film goer now, maybe maybe you're just getting into like. But if you're a big Vi Warchowski fan, (laughs) some of uh, Kathleen Turner's uh, (laughs) best work of of the mid '90s. Um, So I think one of the ways that I thought that it could tie into kind of the overall worst gig, uh, you know, ever concept and what you're doing, and and talking about. You know, what you're doing in, in kind of uh, looking at lovingly at this format. But the flip side of like the democratization of it is that anyone could do it. You know, so you have all of, you know, there's a lot of unwatchable shit that just kind of came out on VHS. You know, if it bare bones or whatever. And it, right. it's different from like, let's say you buy a record for a dollar and it sucks. It's like, well, you didn't take, it, it wasn't a huge time commitment. I don't, I don't, I'm not into this. But with a movie, you know, you have to sit there and devote, you know, at least 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. So something, the thing that I cracked up in, in Rewind This is when you show the box for Malone, mm-hmm. that, which I had to look up. I didn't realize it was like a Bruce, uh, 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 Burt Reynolds movie. Uh-huh. And I don't know if Malone You remember anything. Malone? I, do you remember Malone? I just remember from Tetra Video. I remember the box. Like what was that? Well, putting a, the shot of Malone in there, which I thought was amazing. Um, I don't know if Malone is good or not. I'm assuming it probably <laughs> isn't great. It, it's actually not too bad. Oh, really? Yeah, Who directed it's, it's, it? Do you have okay. any idea? I, I don't recall. But, uh, you know, MGM is doing these burn-on-demand things yeah, now yeah. for the discs, and they released Malone on there. Yeah. So you can actually get it now in its original aspect ratio. Oh, that's great. For oh, we were just posterity. talking about that with Warner uh, before but, this. Yeah, just before we get to that, just this idea of slogging through stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess where, what's your, like, critical barometer I mean, now that that's actually the stuff I'm most interested in, in a way, you know, for years, you know, when I was a kid, I was trying to like watch everything. And then as I got a little bit older, I became kind of a pretentious young man. And like, I really wanted to see the canon. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I would seek out all those kind of films. And then you, you see a lot of that canon stuff. home video you were talking about. Right? No, 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 no. Like, <laughs> uh, uh, more like the Criterion Collection, sure. those sorts of things. Right. Uh, so I would, you know, become very obsessive about that. And then, you know, now what I really am interested in is, uh, 
the non-established canon, like almost creating a canon for myself, like, you know, looking at things that never got any attention and that aren't talked about. And most of it's not going to be good, but sometimes you find gems. And so now I'm, I'm really interested in wading into mm -hmm. that stuff. I'm interested in watching 50 movies to find a good one. Yeah. And, you know, all 50 of those movies are not written about, but there's one that should be. And then discovering that and sharing it with people, that's something that now I'm really interested in. And like, that's where videotape is so valuable because that's where you're going to find that stuff. You know, there, if it's been deemed necessary to re-release onto DVD or if it's right. now coming out new on Blu-ray, that's been vetted. You know, they know that that's going to be a moneymaker. I'm looking for things that would have no reason to make any money, but that are very interesting and that are otherwise lost. Like so that's, you, right. you yourself are an avid collector. I'm an avid collector in the sense that I'm always looking for things that are only available on videotape. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, when I started doing that, I honestly wasn't even approaching it as I'm a collector of this stuff or like thinking of it as like, these are collectors items. Like I just really wanted to see those movies and I was looking for things that I'd never heard of that seemed really strange. And so as a result, I amassed this sort of big collection, but it's only now looking at it that I realized, Oh, I have a pretty good VHS collection. Like right. At the time it was like a very tunnel vision. Like I was just looking for particular titles or discovering things that seemed really exciting. But I do love that world of kind of lost VHS. Gems. Well, I think that's that aspect of collecting that people like kind of, I think sometimes glaze over and like, you know, especially there's like, ah, you can get anything online now anyway. So it's like, well, it's not exactly true. You have to know what you're looking for. And there still is nothing more satisfying to me, especially with records of like, yeah, getting way too many records mm -hmm. and finding that one. It's Absolutely. like, oh, this Absolutely. record existed in 1976 and it's blowing my mind like it just came out and it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And same with movies. I mean, like for me, like it was a big one. But like when I finally saw Rolling Thunder, I was just like, yeah. this is one of the best movies I've ever seen and will kind of weirdly change my life in like a screening that William Lustig did at Anthology because it's not, it wasn't on DVD at any time and it wasn't on that pay to burn one yet. Like, mm -hmm. and so it's like when I, it was exciting. It's, that's like, it's that thrill of the hunt that you're looking for that, that one that will be like, oh, wait, yeah. I was waiting for this. Yeah. 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 So what's your take? Because I'm currently doing my two-week free trial for Warner Instant Archives, mm -hmm. um, which in theory is an, an awesome idea. They, they haven't worked out the kinks yet where mm -hmm. you can't queue uh, things yet. And um, uh, But the idea, it re what it really sounds like is that you want to find these things and, and, and put them out there. So other people can enjoy it, and not so it's necessarily this kind of it's on this arcane format, and you have to do this to watch it. Um, so this idea of finding this stuff, preserving it, and clearly the way things are going is digitizing it mm -hmm. and making it available to people. So it seems like the idea of studios having these kind of on-demand uh, resources you know, is an awesome idea. Well, I mean, there are two sides to it. And, you know, the, the first side to it is exactly what you said. And I think it's great. I love that those companies exist. And I hope, you know, they continue to dive deeper and deeper into their catalogs. I think the concern that I have is that even with something like that, where they're putting out rarities and obscurities, they're still evaluating, you know, each thing. Like, they're not pulling everything out of their catalog and, and throwing it up there. And that's what I'm really interested in is like, mm -hmm. I want, I want access to everything, you know, and that's where this kind of VHS archeology span still has a value. Like I, I best case scenario is they're going to make it all available, but I think that's unrealistic. And so finding these things and digitizing them and finding ways to preserve them, I think is still really important. So I love uh, MGM burn on demand. I love Warner archive. I love that they're doing now a streaming service. And I think that should continue. But until I have some reason to think that, you know, they're going to open up their entire vault and, you know, stream everything, you know, I'm going to still, you know, hold on to the things that I have, you know, in case that doesn't happen. Is, 
Is that the kind of thing? I, maybe I'm naively thinking that there's some kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark esque warehouse with you know all of the masters for for all of these movies. <laughs> but is this something that what you, would you like yeah. to see? <laughs> Could you theoretically like get in touch with a studio, you know, and being like, look, I want to go through your archives. I want to, you know, like how how would you go? How would someone go about doing this other than just kind of randomly finding? They're films? very protective. I mean, the the idea of letting an outside person in to peruse is, you know, unlikely to ever happen. I mean, they have uh, video masters on file, and then they also have uh, thirty five millimeter release prints, and then they have their negatives and some of those things don't exist on all of those forums. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes they've lost the negative to something, but they do have a release print or something else that they can mm-hmm. use to create a new master, or they only have the video master. And a lot of times it's not all in one place. And then when you get outside of the studio world into smaller companies, a lot of that stuff is completely scattered to the wind. So yeah. there, there's definitely no like one-stop shop to be able to, to see that stuff. And, you know, the stuff that does exist, uh, they're not really making it available to the public. Yeah. So at this point, you know, the, the only way to find certain things or, or the easiest way to find certain things is actually just, you know, trading with other collectors or, you know, looking for it online, uh, hunting for it in the wild. Did you um, attempt to get in touch with any of the larger studios to talk to them about titles that maybe haven't been, you know, were only released on VHS or, you know, getting um, like a larger corporation's perspective on the on the issue we did uh and i think it was warner home video is somebody that we contacted uh i think when we initially contacted them because we only did uh a few trips uh so we went to los angeles once and at that point you know we hadn't you know launched our kickstarter to for completion funding we didn't have a a teaser trailer up online so there wasn't as much of an awareness or Mm -hmm. something for people to look at see what we were doing and i think their perception of what we were doing is that it was maybe not going to make them look good. You know, I, I think that was something that we had to fight a lot of times with talking to people. What we want to do is make something that's very celebratory and that, you you know, give everybody a fair shake or, or isn't really even attempting to make any kind of judgment about anybody at all. Uh, but I think a lot of bigger corporations were worried that it was going to... Uh, portray them negatively as though they were kind of like squashing this ability for the public right. access, which, you know, ultimately is really true. Yeah. But, you know, we weren't trying to, you know, paint them in that large. But I mean, I, I say that purely out of speculation. Nobody responded to us with that, but we just didn't really hear back or we wouldn't, you know, hear back from people that, you know, we would give in direct contact for. So I, I feel confident they got the message. So we did, when we went to LA, try to talk to some of the larger corporations, but the independents were the only ones yeah. that responded. Did you contact the Disney vaults just to see? <laughs> no, you know, we, let those we never actually even contacted <laughs> Disney. We we knew enough about yeah. the Disney Corporation that we it just wasn't. Even <laughs> well, I mean, I maybe get Black have, Cauldron out there. Well, they might have some Touchstone title. Wasn't Touchstone their yeah. attempt yep. at branching? Uh, um, so another thing that I wanted to touch on, and we talked about it very, you know, when you were talking about the the late seventies kind of these exploitation movies that were made available, you have that kind of going concurrently with porn. And you see this, you know, sea change in media. Whenever porn's involved, they kind of lead the charge. And I, you know, Bill, Boogie, Billy Nights. Boogie Nights. Billy Nights. Nights. That scene at the New Year's Eve party, 1980. Yeah. Going into 1980. They said where, the future. The future. Home video. So, like, can porn's role in the VHS revolution, so to speak, be understated? Uh, it, it could be, but it shouldn't be. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the thing that I think people sometimes misconstrue, it's kind of, uh, 
urban legend that's been uh, perpetrated a lot is the idea that Sony refused to license to pornographers and, you know, as a result, there was nothing on Betamax, no pornography, and that enabled VHS to win. There's no documented evidence of that. Uh, there's every reason to think that that could have maybe happened. In fact, there are some pornographic tapes that have been found on Betamax. But for whatever reason, the bulk of it definitely was on VHS, and that was wildly successful for the people that did it. So I don't think ultimately it's the thing that made VHS win out in the format wars. I think it was more, you know, the length of the tape and the price point, a lot of things like that. But there's no question that, you know, it changed the pornographic film industry in a huge way almost instantly. I mean, you could make it cheaper, you could get it out wider. There was no of that, none of the kind of shame that was associated with going to a theater. I mean, it made them. You know, it quadrupled their profits as soon as they got involved, and now, I mean that's huge. Now, I, I what the last uh, feature film that was released on VHS was Micho Black, A History Pre- of Violence. History of Violence. Do really? That. Yeah, that's yeah. late in the game. It yeah, feels well, like, like what yeah. was that? Two thousand six. Wow. What uh, was porn still coming out on VHS after that? Any no, idea? I don't think so. Uh, It'd be interesting to look into that. I mean, yeah. certainly uh, History of Violence was the last like, commercially like mass-produced tape. Mm-hmm. I guess it's possible that porn might have been. I'm not sure what the last uh, porn produced on was. But, I mean, at that point already, by the time that VHS was going away, DVD porn still existed for sure and, you know, even still now exists. But online had completely already taken over for porn at that point. You know, the studios and the commercial film industry was very late to that game. Yeah. Like, by the time that VHS was going away in 2006, most people that were consumers of pornography were doing it on the internet. Yeah, right. Damn you, porn. That, that's all she wrote. Yeah. <laughs> so, Josh, as we come full circle, it'll be interesting to get your perspective on this. This is a question we ask all of our guests. Mm-hmm. Being involved in the, in, the, in the film community and dealing with, especially the people you were dealing with in making Rewind This, um, what do you think of the word gig? Yeah. You know, honestly, when I uh, hear the word gig, I always associate it, like to this day, always with music, though. I mean, I know that anything could potentially be a gig, a job or whatever. You know, I've been booked to go to these screenings and that could be a gig. But I I always associate it with music and I always associate it with uh, independent music. Like I never think of like the Rolling Stones as playing a gig. You know, I always think about, you know, when I would go to emos at, you know, 1.30 a.m. and there would still be like two bands coming on. They were playing a gig. Right. Yeah. And that's what I associate with it. I associate with, you know, kind of punk rock bands and a lot of that kind of stuff. And I also associate it, uh, with, uh, a a sense of positivity as it relates to having a job. Whereas, Mm -hmm. like, it's a job, but it's a job that you want. You know, I can't do this fun thing you're inviting me to do because I've got a gig tonight. Right. It's, it's something that, uh, is a responsibility, but is a responsibility that, like, you cherish and that you Mm -hmm. value. And uh, that's what I always think of. I always think of like a job that you can't wait to go to. That's a gig to me. Look, Positive well, listen, outlook. That's, that, that's a good answer. Yeah, that's a good answer. Very good. Well, Josh, uh, this has been a great talk. Solid I love, talk. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. Congratulations on Rewind This. Fantastic. Thank you. It's the worst Fantastic. gig ever approved. Yes, definitely. Um, you can put our seal of approval on all the releases from now on. And, Done. Yes. And just the, the thumbs up. We get the thumbs up. Yep. Put that on. The worst <laughs> gig ever, guys. Thumbs up. Um and hopefully this will lead to other, you know, I'm excited. We're excited. What, We're whatever, excited for Whatever you. happens next. But in order for that to happen, we just want you to get home safe. Thank you, sirs. Worst gig ever. ever.